Chris what my messages were going to be about. He said, can you kind of tie a lasso around these and give us a theme? He actually came up with the theme, and I said, that sounds good. Um, i tell you a little story, though. Um, I first preached these messages in 2011 in the Philippines on the island of Mindanao with um, our dear late brother Steve Fernandez. Steve had asked me to join him and uh, preach with him at the Sola Gratia Seminary there in Mindanao with Pastor Nilo. As it turned out, we got there and Pastor Nilo was dreadfully sick in the hospital and couldn't preach, so we had to fill in for him. But um, Steve and I were talking about the camp, preparing for it, and I said, well, what are you going to preach on? Steve said, glories of Christ, which if you knew Pastor Steve, that was not really a mystery. So I said, well, I think I'm going to preach on the glory of Christ in his humanity. He said, sounds good. We got to the camp, and and maybe some of you have been there or seen the pictures of that conference center in the jungle. It's just a, a beautiful thing. So we're, we're driving up and then walking on this path to the conference center, and there's a huge banner up. And they always do these banners for these pastors' conferences there. And it said, featured speakers, Pastor Steve Fernandez, Pastor Doug Thompson. Then it has the theme, what the Bible says, God says. And I said, Steve, did you see that? Did you know that was the theme? He said, I already knew what I was going to preach on. And that was Steve. Uh, I think actually Pastor Nilo gave me this barong when I spoke there, and that's why I'm wearing that this morning. Um, but I began our time together with this quote from our daughter, Rachel. I want to read it again. What is God like? Moses asked this question but was only able to catch a glimpse because no one can look at God in all his glory and live. When we ask what is God like, we get a different answer. Rather than merely seeing the back of God passing by, <clears throat> we get to behold Jesus, the exact imprint of God, the Almighty in the flesh, the great I am with skin on. Jesus is so real that he has a body even now, and one day we will see him face to face and fall into his arms. We will be embraced by God himself, and we will live. Because he lived our life, he could die our death. And because he lived our life in every way, every way except for our sins, we have a friend in Jesus. So what's next? What's next? This morning I want to announce to you good news. <clears throat> the Word of God promises that if your faith and trust are in Jesus Christ, you do not need to fear the day of judgment. Because the day of God's judgment for you is past. It happened on Calvary, Good Friday, 2,000 years ago. When Jesus bore God's wrath and judgment in your place, the day that you dread the most has come and gone. Um, I want to read something now from my friend Steve Fernandez. 
He wrote a book, maybe some of you read it, called Free Justification, the Glorification of Christ in the Justification of a Sinner. He tells a story in there, and I want to read you the story. <clears throat> he said recently, and this was many years ago, I had the proud privilege of preaching at a pastor's conference in Honduras. Their response to free justification illustrates what I'm trying to say. I decided to address these men on justification in the final session of the conference. With only one hour and working through a translator, I knew I had to be very clear and concise. I wanted them to see the glory of Christ in the justification of sinners like themselves. I knew that if they grasped this, God could use it to influence and inflame their preaching and be a blessing in their churches, perhaps the Church of Honduras. I began by explaining from Romans 3, 9 through 11, and verse 19, that we all sin, that we have no righteousness of our own, not even as believers. Our motives, our gratitude, and our love for God is never as it ought to be. We never love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, as we should. I further explained from Romans 1, 21, 23, and 3, 23, that our sin involves a wicked refusal to honor and glorify God as he rightly deserves. We continually trample his name under our feet. Then I explained that to be justified, two things must be true. I told them that if God were to justify us without these two things, he would, in fact, only be another corrupt, unjust judge. This seemed to come close to home to these men. First, to be justified, we must have no guilt before God. The guilt of our sins must be wholly removed. Christ did this when he became a propitiation for our sins, which I explained as a satisfaction or a payment in full that satisfied God's just anger against us. I illustrated it by comparing it to someone who went to a person to whom you owed a great debt, which had greatly offended that person, and on your behalf, because you had no means to, paid your debt in full. I also explained that to be justified, more was required than just the removal of guilt. We must also ourselves honor and glorify God by loving him with our whole heart and worshiping him with a glad-hearted obedience. Christ did this for us as well. I explained from Romans 5, 18 and 19 that Christ, by his one act of righteousness in his death upon the cross, which is called his obedience in verse 19, honored and glorified the Father. In other words, Christ, on our behalf, offered a glad, willing obedience that showed that the Father was infinitely worthy to be supremely glorified Therefore, as a result of Christ's death, our guilt is gone, and the honoring and glorifying of God that is required has been gladly offered for us, all by Christ's propitiatory death in our place. Then finally, I explained that by a repentant, Christ-embracing faith, God unites us to Christ. By this union, all Christ has done is regarded as if we had done it. So his righteousness and obedience is imputed to us, and we are at once, at that very moment, forever justified. 
And in it all, God remains entirely just when he justifies the one who has faith in Christ. At that point, something happened while I was preaching that I had never seen before. The entire group of men, without any cue, spontaneously rose up and with much gladness and an unrestrained joy began to clap and praise the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a simultaneous, joyous response of worship. They had seen that the guilt of all their sin was truly gone and that the honor God deserves had been given to God for them, all done by another, the Savior himself. I saw with my own eyes the soul-liberating, worship-producing, and joy-giving reality of justification by faith before my own eyes. In their response, I saw it all glad-hearted adoration and worship from a grateful heart, a renewed zeal to serve, an assurance that their soul was saved forever, and a glorifying of God as a result of a fuller understanding of His justifying grace, mercy, and love. It confirmed to me once again that free justification is at the center of everything. The eternal and temporal good of man and more importantly, the exalting of the glorious sufficiency of Christ is at stake. It is worth our tireless effort to preach it and defend it as long as God gives us breath. Wow. Wow. What a great story. Well, this morning, I want to talk about justification. And I want you to leave here knowing that justification means for you no more judgment. First, we want to look at justification past. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And this is a passage that I memorized as a baby Christian, I think while I was still a Jesus freak. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes, therefore, since these things are true in the first four chapters, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the verb tenses here. There's a past tense. We have been justified. It's history. And there's a present tense, an ongoing, continual tense, as a result of our past historical justification, we now have and continue to have and will continue to have peace with God. We have it now. We'll have it forever. It's a done deal. Now think with me. If you could ever lose your salvation, if somehow you found that eternal life actually turned out to be temporary, if you could become unjustified, could you ever have peace with God? Would you ever be at peace with God? Well, I'm saved today, but I might not be saved tomorrow. Always worried that you might do something to undo your salvation. 
And there are many Christians who carry this fear with them every day. Well, may, maybe I'm saved today. Maybe I have faith today. But what about tomorrow? Maybe, I'll, maybe I will change my mind about Jesus tomorrow. Or maybe Jesus will change his mind about me. You would never have peace. You'd never have a moment's peace. And that would make this verse a lie. But how could anything undo what Jesus finished 2,000 years ago? When you trust in Christ, the Father, the judge of the universe, declares you justified. You have peace with God. It's yours today. It will be yours tomorrow. And on the day of judgment, it will still be yours. Case closed. But three chapters later in Romans, Paul anticipates the, the struggling Christian who still might worry that some awful sin might reopen his case file and his crimes might be retried. So he says in Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We just sang it. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Brothers and sisters, justification equals no condemnation, no more judgment. He brings it up again in Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The ones God chose? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is now at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Layer upon layer of assurance, right? Even in our imperfect law courts, if the judge declares you acquitted of your crime, you cannot be tried again for this crime. That's the law of double jeopardy. So if God himself justifies you on the basis of the blood of his own son, nothing can ever change that, alter, they, alter that. You might even say that nothing could ever separate you from the love of God in Christ, which is what Paul said. Charles Spurgeon preached this. Wow. He said, we are today accepted in the beloved, today absolved from sin, today acquitted at the bar of God. We are now pardoned. Even now are our sins put away. Even now we stand in the sight of God accepted as though we had never been guilty. There is not a sin in the book of God even now against one of his people. Who dares to lay anything to their charge? There is neither speck nor spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing remaining upon any one believer in the matter of justification in the sight of the judge of all the earth. Do you believe that? Well, if you're not convinced, turn with me to John chapter 5, verse 24. John 5, 24. And I believe you're convinced, but I also believe that the devil is the accuser of the brethren, right? And so is your conscience. And unfortunately, so are some of your friends. So look with me at John 5, 24. And this is our Lord Jesus speaking. He said, truly, truly, amen, amen. 
I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Now, do you notice he doesn't say will get eternal life? He says has it already. Has it already. I take this to mean that regeneration precedes faith, but we'll move on. You have it already. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Wow. So Jesus says that the person who believes that God has sent his son has eternal life, has it right now, and he does not come into judgment because he is passed from death into life. This is in the perfect tense, which points to a past fact with continuing results. This person will never face the judgment of God because he passed through it in Christ into eternal life. And I want to be very clear that what Pastor Steve explained to these men is that God is just and the justifier. Your justification doesn't mean that God just got sentimental and mushy one day and decided to give you a free pass on your sins. Not at all. Every single one of your sins were punished in Christ. Fully and finally on the cross. All the hell that your sins deserved was experienced by your Savior. And then he cried out, what? Te telestai, it is finished. You could no more face the judgment of God than Jesus could face it again. And we sing it, don't we? This, the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. Took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. I know most of you believe this. You cherish this doctrine. But this morning I want to talk to you about what it means for you if you're a Christian on the day of judgment. What awaits you and me? We talked about our past judgment. Now let's talk about judgment future. What awaits us? And that really was the reason Pastor Steve Fernandez wrote this book. Because some people say, well, there's a past justification, but there's also a future justification. The past justification involved Jesus and what he did, but there's a future justification that's going to involve what you do. Let's read on in John chapter 5, verse 28. Jesus said, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus says at his second coming, there will be a general resurrection of all the dead, Paul said the same thing in Acts 24, 15. There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Everyone will get their body back. But notice how Jesus describes this. Unbelievers will be raised for the resurrection of judgment. When unbelievers die, they immediately begin to experience torment for their sins. At the resurrection, then they're reunited with their bodies just to prepare them for their final judgment and then to be thrown body and soul into the lake of fire. They're raised for judgment. That's a horrible thought. But look at the other group. 
those who have done good. Now, Jesus is describing the evidence, not the basis of their justification. The evidence in the lives of believers, they will be raised to a resurrection of life. He doesn't mention judgment for God's people. Just life. They've already passed through judgment at Calvary. They're raised and immediately they're glorified. Therefore, Paul says in Romans 8.23, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're still waiting for that. I'm looking at you all. Believe me, we're all still waiting, right? <laughs> we're waiting for that day. To have a glorified body, as Paul said in Philippians 1, that's just like his. And we wait eagerly, not fearfully. We're not wondering about our fate. We're not crossing our fingers. Do you see this? Brothers and sisters, you have no condemnation to dread, only glory. Now I want to take you to an interesting passage that describes this final judgment. Turn now to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And we're not going to get into eschatological nuances. I don't want to get myself in trouble. Have you tell on me to Tony. I just want to show you something very interesting in this passage. Revelation chapter 20. Let's begin in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You have to notice there that John writes about books, and then he writes about a book. First are the books by which men will be judged in verse 13, and it says, according to what they had done, their deeds. This is the book of all the thoughts and deeds of unbelievers. Unbelievers. They will be judged by their own works. Why? Because that's what they wanted. That's what they wanted. You say, well, what do you mean? I, I, I mean that in, unless you're trusting in Christ's work for your salvation, you can call yourself a Hindu, a Muslim, a Jew, an atheist, and an agnostic, when it gets right down to it, you're trusting in your own works. You're trusting in your own works. You're hoping against hope. If there is a God, your good will outweigh your bad. Well, I think I'm a pretty good person, right? I've never murdered anyone yet. And because they rejected the gospel, they will be judged by the law. That's what they wanted. And that's the way they will have it. 
And it won't be pretty for two reasons. Number one, every secret and every public sin will be in those books. And each one demands eternal punishment because each one is against the holy God. We've, we've talked about that. No person standing in that judgment will have anything to offer to pay for their sin. Now, they think that when they do good things, it cancels out a bad thing. But they will find out on the day of judgment it does not work that way. Every sin will be there confirming their guilt. And Exodus 34, 7 says he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Second thing is, they didn't know it, but if they chose to earn their eternal life by their own efforts, God's standard is what? Sinless perfection. Sinless perfection. Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Paul goes on to give an example of those who try to earn heaven this way in Galatians 5, 2 through 4. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he's obligated to keep the whole law. So you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. In other words, if you think that you're going to get to heaven by being good, you are dreaming because God's standard is perfection. Only one man qualifies, right? Only one man qualifies for heaven. And the only ones who get in are those who follow him. I like to think about when I go to Costco with my wife. I forgot my card. She's got her card. She shows it, and I go in behind her, <laughs> right? Only one man ever qualified for heaven, and that's the Lord Jesus. And we only get in if we're with him, if we're one in him, united with him. So the books will be opened, and the dead will be judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now, again, this is important to remember in this passage. The dead who will be judged by the books only refers to unbelievers. Jesus said in John 5, 29, unbelievers will be raised for the resurrection of judgment. Believers have passed out of judgment and into life. They'll be resurrected to life, not judgment. So what about believers? Well, God will deal with them from a completely different book. Look at verse 12. Then another book was opened, which is what? The book of life. Uh, the word another here is the Greek word alas. There are two Greek words for another, heteros, which means another of a different sort, and alas, which means another, no, different, heteros, heteros, same, alas, different, okay. So this is another book. It's a different kind of a book than the other book. This book is the book of the perfect, complete work of Jesus Christ, but it includes all the names of those who are in him, in union with him, who trusted in his work on their behalf. Those in the books will be judged by the law. Those in the book will be judged by the gospel. Revelation 13.8 says, This is the book of life of the Lamb, who was slain. And the Greek literally says the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. This isn't just the book of life. It's the book of the life of Jesus Christ. 
the life that was given for those and to those who trusted in him. What a book. What a great book. And when were their names written in that book? Before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for the adoption of sons as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That's why their names are written in this book of the life of Christ. So I want you to get this. The great white throne judgment shows two different types of persons who are judged by two different kinds of books. Unbelievers will be judged by the books of their own works. Believers have already been judged in Christ's death on the cross. Their names are in the book of the life of Jesus and his work. So what kind of judgment awaits a Christian? Now I want you to remember what we've seen. If you're a Christian, your judgment day happened on Good Friday 2,000 years ago. It's over. You passed out of judgment into life. At the moment you leave this earthly life, to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. Hallelujah. You go immediately to be with Christ. At the resurrection, then you're reunited with your body, a glorified body like Christ's, and you will receive your full adoption as sons. But then, you have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be humiliated as a movie of your entire life. And all of your past sins is shown to multitudes of mocking men and angels. Is that right? I've heard that preached. Some of you have. It's called the fear tactic, right? You're going to catch it on the day of judgment, brother, sister. Really? And then Jesus Christ will berate you and lecture you for not doing more for him while you were on this earth. It will be a day of shame, embarrassment, and even tears and sorrow. I, I, heard, I heard a preacher say, Bible says he's going to dry every tear. That means there's going to be tears on that day. Oh, man. I don't believe that. I don't believe that for a second. How could we possibly look forward to that day with eagerness, with great anticipation? How could it be called our blessed hope if we thought that our most horrible sins would be dredged up again in the sight of a holy God? Especially when we consider even our best works are like filthy rags. That would be torture. I would dread Christ's coming instead of looking forward to it. But Christian... Your judgment took place on Calvary when Jesus took all your guilt, all your humiliation, all your shame, all your sorrows and tears on himself. He drank the cup of the judgment of God's wrath on your sins to the last drop so that none of it will be left for you on that day. Micah 7.19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, as far as I know, they don't ever meet. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Hebrews 8, 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Beloved, 
God does not have amnesia. He is omniscient. What this means is he chooses not to ever, ever bring them up again to be used against you. No more. No more punishment. No more guilt. No more grief. God forbid. We sing it. And on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live and more than that God accounts to all who trust his son his own perfect obedience and righteousness so justification means that we are clothed in the brilliant white robe of the sinless obedience of his own son that's how God treats us now amen how much more Will God treat us on that day? And think about this. This is really the clincher. When we stand before God at this judgment seat of Christ, we'll have our glorified bodies. <laughs> how, could God, how could God chew us out? We're in our glorified bodies. We're just like his son. Jude 24, he will keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Ephesians 5.27, he will present the church to himself in splendor without spot or blemish or a wrinkle, any such thing. This is the way you will and I will appear before Christ on that day. So will Christians face any sort of judgment? Well, that's a valid question. 2 Corinthians 5.10, and some of you might be thinking about this already. Paul wrote, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Actually, that word evil means good or worthless. So yes, God's children will appear before Christ, but not to deal with their sins, because they've already been dealt with and judged at the cross. This judgment is only for the purpose of reward and praise from God. The word judgment seat that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it's a Greek word, bema. And the bema was the place where Olympic athletes in that day would receive their victor's crowns. But it was not a place where they punished the losers. Only rewarded the winners. Listen, Revelation 11.18 the nations raved, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great. Rewarding. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Paul says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Colossians 3, 24 and 25. Paul has been saying, do your work heartily. Do it as unto the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. No punishment, no lectures, no berating, just reward. How many times did Jesus speak about our rewards in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, 4, verse 6, verse 18, Jesus said, when you do your good deeds in secret, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
Luke 6, 23, when you're persecuted for Christ's sake, rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. All that you do for the glory of Christ and the power of the Spirit will be rewarded. Your toil in the Lord is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, right? But what about your sins? What about all the time you wasted? I'm not even going to mention TikTok here. My friends, Jesus died to cover all that, and on that day, it's just burned away. It's just burned away. Does it have to be punished again? It's already been punished once. Paul gave us a, a vivid picture of this in 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 11. He says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. There will only, only be loss, no more punishment, and only reward. Maybe you remember seeing it in Needlepoint, hanging in Grandma's home. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's true. Everything else burned away, forgotten, just a memory. Only the gold will be left. Brothers and sisters, we are joint heirs with Christ, one with him. We get everything he gets. Coronation, not judgment. This is what you will hear when you stand before Jesus. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And while you're still getting over your shock, rubbing your eyes, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have what? Passed away. And he will make all things new. Passed away like a bad dream. Someone said, everything sad is going to come untrue. So let me get real practical here. How do you think about that day when you stand before Christ? Is it with great ho hope or is it with fear and dread? There, there, there probably isn't one of us here who hasn't stared at the ceiling some night, eyes wide open, hearts beating, in our chest, sweaty palms, anxious about that day. I'm giving you very good news this morning. Since the day you put your faith in Jesus, God has only, only seen you as he sees his own son, clothed in his glorious righteousness. He sees you that way this morning. He will see you that way forever. So let me ask you, having been justified by faith in Christ, do you have peace with God this morning? It's yours. It's yours. Grab onto it.
Lay hold of it. Don't ever let the world or the devil or some legalist take it away from you. The Heidelberg Catechism asks this question. What comfort is it to you that Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead? Here's the answer. In all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as judge the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God and so removed the whole curse from me, all his enemies and mine, he will condemn to everlasting punishment. But me and all his chosen ones, he will take along with him into the joy and the glory of heaven. Let's pray this morning. Father, all of this prepares us to come to your table because salvation is all of grace, all about what Christ has done for us. When we come to the table, the only two things on that table are the bread and the cup. Reminders of what the Lord Jesus did for us. He brings it all to the table. It's not a potluck. We don't bring anything. We just come to the table to receive what Christ has done for us. And it was enough. It was sufficient to save the worst sinner or the best person. We thank you, Father, that the Lord Jesus came down, down, down to our level, became one of us, got right into our skin so that we have a Savior and we have a friend. Father, thank you for the fellowship that we've had here this weekend. Uh, Janice and I, it's been a time of making new friends and renewing old friendships. And it's just a foretaste of the glories divine. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, certainly what a glorious truth it is to have that guarantee and that assurance that there is no condemnation to know that you have peace with a holy God. If you're here today and you don't know if you have that peace, you're not sure you have that peace. You're not sure even what that peace is, maybe. Maybe you're a little person. You're not sure what's going on. Talk to someone. Talk to your mom and dad. Talk to someone you came with. Because there is no greater peace. This world offers you nothing compared to what Christ offers you with a holy God. Thank you, Doug, for those reminders. Thank you again for being here. Okay, we have... Uh, right. So here's what I would like you to do. We got about, next session starts at 11. So we got a little time to stretch our legs, grab your children, get the wiggles out. We, wa we want it, and there's candy, more candy. Um, so get the wiggles out, stretch out, go to use the restroom, make any last sort of packing arrangements you need to do. We want to come back in here at 11 o'clock. And when we come back in here, 
two things will be happening. We'll share some time together to mutually encourage one another about things that spoke to you this weekend, uh, memories you made, things you learned, encouragement you received from the word or from others. We want to share that with one another. And then we'll share on the Lord's table after that. And a reminder, brothers, during the Lord's table, we, it's conferences like this, we like to encourage you to open the word of God, read a few passages that remind us of the hope we have in Christ and bring us to the throne as we seek to share in the Lord's table together. By way of just um, facilitating all of that, what we like to do is have these chairs. Yes, yes, yes. Why not? Well, that's cheap, man. Well, that was four years ago, man. Okay, so here's the deal. So we're not facing each other. So it's not going to be super personal, which is kind of lame. But so here's what you do. When you're, if you're going to share something, stand up, turn around so people see you, right? Um, if you're going to share a scripture passage, stand up so people 